The delight that we each feel to be able to gather and to assemble this morning is truly a fantastic thing. And in that, we appreciate how grand and how sweet in so many ways are God's wonderful blessings. Sure enough, as we come to this opening Sunday in November, we're thankful for all the things about us. And today, I hope that as we have sung these songs and offered prayer to God, that we'll also, for the next few moments, give some consideration to a lesson whose title is on the wall behind me. The idea of marriage, the consideration of it, of course, is a frequent one in the Word of God. And that frequency perhaps leads to some of these introductory remarks for the lesson today. It's clear, isn't it, that marriage is a vital, a crucial part of that overall scheme of God for the human family. Not only its continuance, but for its ongoing happiness. In Genesis 2, verses 18 and following, that dramatic statement wherein we find, of course, the origination of woman. Adam had been created, but the thing that God saw that wasn't good is that he was alone. And at that point, surgery soon thereafter with God as the surgeon brought forth a rib from his side, and from that constructed, of course, a woman, brought her to the man. And at that point, those unforgettable statements in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 23, where even Adam highlighted that she was taken out of man, and so she'll be called woman. And then God affirming this truth. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh." With all of that said, near the top of that slide, you and I understand the honor and the respect that accords to marriage. Isn't it stated in Hebrews 13, 4 that marriage is honorable in all? And so, with it looked upon in the way that God created it, how sweet and how honorable is that estate? It is true, though, that that leads to the question of the lesson this morning. What about remarriage? Can an individual enter into a second marriage and do so in a way that's pleasing unto God? And if so, what about the specifics of this? As you and I can well imagine, this is a vital question, and it's one that often appears to you and me, because after all, we'd like to know what does God feel about this and what is His will on this matter. We're going to devote the lesson today in its entirety to that subject. So I hope that you and I will be encouraged to appreciate marriage as God has originated it and, of course, to understand the limitations He has placed even on the, real, the reality that accords to remarriage. This next slide will be one that brings us to note this basic truth. I've entitled it Conditions. That word basically carries this idea. You and I are exceedingly aware of the fact that there are many circumstances in life in which a given opportunity or reward can only be appreciated if certain conditions are met. Parents and children know this well. Dad, I'd like another piece of pie, son, if you'll finish the first one. So if that child doesn't finish the first piece, then the second is off limits. Or a child who says, I'd like to have the keys to the car. If your chores are finished, you can have it. Conditions are understood. And as you and I get older, we also know sometimes even in the workplace and in other circumstances of life, conditions must be satisfied in order for the recipient of those things that go along with it. We'll notice on that slide, all throughout the Word of God, 
their conditions that are stated in conjunction with so many things. Not just any man can serve as an elder. There are certain conditions that a man has to meet. 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. In fact, there's 22 of them. And a man who doesn't satisfy them then cannot lawfully, by the appreciation of God, serve as an elder. We don't have any trouble understanding that. By the same token, a deacon, if a man is to serve as a deacon, there are conditions, qualifications that he must meet. Again, presented to you and me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. May I ask, what about salvation? Isn't it still true that there are well understood conditions that go along with salvation? I can't be saved if I don't meet those things that God has set forth. You and I have learned that from an early age, belief and repentance and confession and baptism, we know what those are and we understand the place that they, that they occupy. What about this one? Marriage. Should a man and a woman, are there certain conditions that ought to be met in order for an individual to enter even the first time into a marriage in a way that pleases God? And you and I know that answer to be yes. What about a remarriage? Are there certain conditions then that must be satisfied in order for this arrangement, although the law of the land may give full credence to it, are there certain conditions that must be made in order for God to be pleased with it? And that will be the focus of our study for a little while this morning. As you and I come near the close of that slide, let me interject this statement. It's one that no doubt has already occurred to you and me because clearly this is a topic that not only presents challenges, but it does so because of emotion. An individual may well be in position, he or she may feel as if this is all right. May I suggest it doesn't matter what you or I feel about this. It doesn't matter what we think about it. Only God can legislate concerning this topic and only He can determine whether or not a given remarriage would satisfy that which would be pleasing in His sight. And so as we give some appreciation to that this morning, let's look at the next slide. Because after all, we now can appreciate the biblical discussion of this is exceedingly limited. There's only two reasons that a person can enter the second time into a marriage and it be pleasing to God. Let's look at the first one. The death of a person's spouse. In Romans chapter 7, you might want to be turning to that place with me. We're going to just let God do all the talking on this one. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse number 2, we have the following statement that namely, as Paul addressed some comments to the church in Rome, he, in fact, was highlighting the nature of law and one's subservience to it. But in the context of that, he draws an analogy and states a truth as it relates to marriage. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 2 of Romans 7, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband, so then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. 
And Paul's description by inspiration is very to the point, isn't it? In verse number 2, that woman that has a husband is bound by the law to him as long as he's alive. But if he dies, then she is able to marry again. She's able to marry in the wording of verse number 3. And you'll notice she's not called an adulteress in that case. But if she marries again while he's still alive, she's an adulteress. Now that wording again is very direct, isn't it? And so as you and I build some appreciation about it, let's fill in a few interesting thoughts and details based on this passage. Notice at the top, we can immediately appreciate then that something was said about the death of this person's spouse. When that individual passes on, that ends that marriage on this earth. Let's be very careful as we make that statement. You and I might remember that back in Matthew 22, the Lord had been asked questions about this. On that occasion, He said that the angels don't sustain that same kind of physical relationship. That is to say, once we pass from this life into the next one, that same physical consideration you and I call marriage, it isn't sustained in the same way. He said the angels don't entertain that kind of arrangement. Well, you'll notice then when that spouse passes on, then the living spouse that's left behind is no longer married to that individual. That kind of thing has brought to its termination. It is in that way, though, we might now ask this. So, perhaps an individual has his or her spouse who has died. Can that living spouse remarry? Paul says he or she can. Verse number 3 again says, But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. She is free to remarry. She is able to, with the blessing of God. But one additional thought might well need to be noted. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and notice this additional statement about this matter. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. That sounds very much like what we just read in Romans 7, but the verse goes on. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. So we now note this. If an individual's spouse passes on, it is the will of God that that living spouse, the one who is still alive, can remarry but it needs to be in the Lord. Remarriage must then be in accordance to all the conditions relative to what God has asserted concerning that remarriage. Only in the Lord. Now, we would be quick to say, even as you'll notice on the slide, and I put it in quotation marks for us to note, the Holy Spirit there affirmed, only in the Lord. How vital it is then for us to appreciate that that's the will of God for a first marriage, by the way to marry a Christian. Every Christian ought to only consider marrying another Christian, period. As many examples in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that lead us to those appreciations, well, certainly when it comes to a widow, as she desires perhaps to find companionship and look to remarry, she needs to marry in the Lord. And would you and I note the adverb? Only in the Lord. That ought to be the only possible consideration. 
Aren't you impressed as we give thought? God has then made a limitation. There's a condition here. A widow, or for that matter, a widower, can remarry, but it needs to be in the Lord only. As you and I come near the close of that slide, doesn't this discussion then highlight one interesting thought? As we come to the qualifications set forth for both the elder and the deacon, isn't it interesting it says he is to be the husband of one wife? Sometimes the question is asked, suppose a man who is married, suppose his wife dies and he later remarries in the Lord. Can he serve as an elder? Is she his second wife? Does he have two living wives? Well, of course not. Based on that Romans 7 passage, that first marriage has been terminated. He loved her, but she's passed on. This second woman he is married, he's still just the husband of one wife. And therefore, at least for those reasons, with all the other qualifications met, he would be able to still serve as an elder. Interesting in light of these things how that then the death of a spouse, God does afford and offer the opportunity to remarry. Are there any other conditions? Are there any other circumstances in which one would be able to enter into a second marriage? The next several slides are all going to relate to the only other one the Bible mentions. Now, I suppose we might well assert it in the following way. Suppose my wife hasn't died. She's still alive. Is there ever any way for me to divorce her and to enter into a second marriage? As you and I discussed the circumstances surrounding that one, again, may I suggest there certainly can be a great amount of emotion attached to it. Our interest is only what the Word of God has to say. At the top of that slide, let's begin by identifying there are several passages, all of which we can utilize to help us appreciate the truth on this matter. There's Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 16, and 1 Corinthians 7, perhaps most directly, and yet with every one of them. Let me invite you to turn to Matthew 19. That'll be the place that we'll be looking in some detail in just a few moments. The 19th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. May we make a few observations based on this passage. Jesus doing the talking. Beginning in verse number 3, He says, The Pharisees came also unto Him, tempting Him and saying to Him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Would you and I be impressed with the pertinency of that question then? That was asked 2,000 years ago roughly, and yet it sounds just as timely as last week's newspaper. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, you and I may notice, they asked this of the Master. It says tempting him. They weren't honest about wanting to know the answer. All they wanted to do was present some circumstance such that Jesus would be discredited among the people. But aren't you impressed? The Lord used the opportunity to teach a timeless and eternal lesson. Verse number 4, And he answered that he is Jesus. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read? Right there's our problem today, just as it was then. People don't read the Bible. And even if they do, they seem to have little interest in what it says. Little interest in, I can't enter into a marriage if it doesn't meet the conditions set forth in the Bible. 
Doesn't matter how strong my feelings for this person may be. Doesn't matter how much time I've invested. If it doesn't satisfy the conditions of God, I'm going to be doomed if I do this. Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? First qualification. Nobody can enter into marriage if it's not a man and a woman. I don't care what the law of the land says. Two men can't marry each other. Two women can't marry each other. The Lord said here, forevermore, it had to be a man and a woman. Only God can dictate, define, and determine who the lawful entrance into marriage can be. You'll notice in verse number 4, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. The entrance into marriage is fundamentally to the point where one flesh is thus formed. These two individuals have been so molded and so joined and so wielded, if you please, that they have become one flesh, united in purpose, in mission, in many of the connections characteristic of life in this flesh. In addition to that, the Lord said in verse number 5, it says... Father and mother are to be left. Your primary association is now with this woman you've married, or for the woman, this man you've married. Though you love dad and mom, and though you're thankful so much for all that they have done, and even will in some sense continue to do, your first loyalty is now to your mate. Dad and mom don't run this household anymore. This new husband does. He is the head of this house. And his wife is submissive to him. She doesn't answer to her dad and mom anymore, and he doesn't answer to his dad and mom anymore. There is a separation in that regard. A new household has been formed. In addition to this, verse 6, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Some of the comments on that slide. That verse 6 immediately tells us what God has joined, let not man put asunder. We've already highlighted today, haven't we, that only God can determine the lawful participants and their entrance into marriage. That verse teaches us only God can determine when a marriage can be dissolved and what right any of those parties has to remarry. Only God can determine this. We really have not the slightest care what the governor of the state of Tennessee may say, what the Supreme Court may say. It is immaterial. Only God can determine if and when a marriage can be dissolved and under what conditions. At this point, the Lord goes on to say this, as you'll notice on the slide. In verse number 7, the Pharisees, to their credit, they made this immediate consideration. They say unto him, Why? Did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? They already sensed clearly the Lord taking them back to the scene in Eden and highlighting that from the very nature of the outset, God's view of marriage was high indeed. Now, just as it is today, there were many in that day who felt as if you could get a divorce for nearly any reason you wanted. They were already sensing Jesus was saying no to that. 
And so immediately they said, well, if what you're asserting or even insinuating is the case, then why did Moses allow a man to divorce his wife? And they quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Let's note the Lord's reply in verse number 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. The hardness of their heart led to God tolerating that activity in that perhaps ancient era. But Jesus quickly asserted from the very outset of time it was not that way by intent of God. And He's thus is now about to thunderously put in place the timeless conditions upon which any such remarriage can happen. Because in verse number 9 now He says, And I say to you, notice He's not quoting Moses anymore. He's not even referring to any Old Testament truth. I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. On the slide behind us, you'll notice then the Lord is now making direct reference to a divorce and that which can take place after it, namely a, a marriage. And so as we develop some appreciations on this next slide, may we do that based on the text that we just read in verse number 9. And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife. In some sense, let's take it either word by word or phrase by phrase in that verse so that we can appreciate what it is that our Master is teaching us. Whosoever. May I ask each of us to notice this word whosoever applies to all human beings. I don't care what country you live in. I don't care whether you're old or young, how much you may be educated or not. It makes no difference. Whoever. Now, that being said, isn't it interesting that he goes on to say, shall put away his wife. That's that biblical understanding and assertion in relation to divorce, isn't it? Any man, anybody. Now here, of course, it is stated from the perspective of the man putting away his wife. Mark's account states it in the other order. What if the woman puts away her husband? Either way, the conditions are the same. Whosoever shall put away his wife. So this man, who, though he has been married to her, he now files for and obtains divorce from her. Easy enough to appreciate and understand, isn't it? You and I know that the laws of the land today, as well as perhaps laws in virtually all countries with which I'm aware, will permit the obtaining of a divorce. Now, although it was true that it was a little harder to get divorces in days gone by, it still, of course, could be obtained. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. Now, let's hold on to the exception clause for just a moment and proceed to look at the next verb the Lord used. So, whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another... So clearly, here's an individual who is desiring and in reality wishes to enter into a second marriage. I'll put this one away and I'll proceed to marry another woman. You'll notice what the Lord said. Now please appreciate the law of the land may wholly grant this. In fact, may offer no resistance whatsoever to it. You and I know very well 
that you can go and secure the services of a lawyer, and for roughly $125 or maybe $150, you can get you a divorce. No questions asked. You don't have to offer a reason. You don't have to say anything that would offer a justifiable reason to divorce her. All you got to do is want it, and the laws of our land will grant it. In fact, it even matters not what the spouse wants. She may not want the divorce, but she has no say in it. If the husband wants it, the lawyer will get it and the judge will grant it. Sad that it can be obtained in a fashion like that, but that's the way it is. Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another commits adultery. That's what Jesus said. And so on that slide, what about the verb tense that Jesus used? His description of the adultery. May we pause at this point to say, adultery, of course, is damning business. One will lose his soul over this. Because in Galatians 5, verses 19 and following, when the works of the flesh are mentioned, and of course there's a lengthy list of things like murder and adultery. I'll go to hell over this. Anybody who then secures this divorce, without the exception clause in place, and marries another woman, is committing adultery. Now, I say is committing adultery because that's the tense of the verb our Lord used. And it's not as if. It is a one-time committing of adultery, for instance, on the moment of the marriage or on the circumstances of that evening. It is an ongoing, daily committing of adultery every as so long as that marriage continues. That's the verb tense Jesus used. That's a strong wording without doubt. On that slide, you'll note this. So what we've at least read so far in the verse, whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, as you and I know, he did insert the exception clause, and now let's go back and highlight it. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. We noted earlier today about the importance of conditions. And so here, Jesus, the Son of God Himself, highlights that except it be for fornication. Aren't you impressed sometimes how easily we understand the word except? E-X-C-E-P-T. It's easy to understand, isn't it? You come to a particular parking place in some uh, establishment just outside thereof, and it says... Parking except or only for policemen or parking only for expectant mothers or parking for handicapped. Well, we understand they're the only ones then permitted to park in those places. Here Jesus used that word except. And isn't it true that as He made that statement, here's the idea. Unless one of the individuals in that initial marriage is putting the other one away because of fornication that person cannot remarry. If you do, you're committing adultery. If you do, you're committing adultery. And not only that, the person you're marrying is committing adultery because that's what he uses to close verse number 9. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And so the scenarios that you and I could easily imagine... Perhaps take this form. Here's a gentleman who's married to a woman, and maybe there comes a time when he just tires of the marriage. 
And so he secures a divorce, but he is interested in the companionship offered by a wife, and so he finds another woman. Maybe she's never been married before. Maybe for every other reason she is lawfully able to enter into a marriage that would please God. But yet this text says if she marries him, even though she was eligible to marry, she's now committing adultery. Both of them are. And therefore, the strength of this passage, Jesus identified very clearly in such a way that marriage, both then and now, must be understood that only God can legislate concerning it. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, that reference to adultery, this sexual sin, maybe there's more that could and should be said about that. In our next slide, we'll see if we can highlight some of those features. Suppose individuals A and B are married to each other, so a man and a woman. And as they, of course, enjoy the benefits and the blessings of this, we notice that the time comes that A wishes to divorce B for some cause other than fornication. Nothing having to do with the sexual infidelity on the part of B. Rather, A just wishes to not be linked to B anymore. If A then marries C, what Jesus taught here is that A and C are both committing adultery. And it shall ever be so, so long as they're married to one another. Now at that point, notice some of the conclusions at the bottom. We have biblical examples of individuals who were in circumstances that have bearing upon these things we've just learned today. I'd like you to revisit Matthew 14 with me. Let's look at an exhibit of a, of a person in this very situation. In Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse number 2, it says, I'll start reading in verse 1 actually. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of John, or rather the fame of Jesus, and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. As you and I revisit that passage, isn't it intriguing? Here was a man, namely John the Baptist. The fact of the matter is, you'll notice mention here made of two great rulers in that area of Palestine. One of them, you'll notice, was Herod, and the other was Philip. The fact is, verse number 3 again says that Herod had laid hold on John and put him in prison for his brother Philip's wife. You see, Philip had been married to this woman, but they had obtained a divorce, and now she was married to Philip's brother. John had the nerve to openly tell him, you're not lawful to have her. She's still Philip's wife. Though the law of the land says you're married to her, she's still married to him. She's his wife. They had not been divorced lawfully according to the things of God. Did you notice this man then had another, another man's wife? That's why it's adultery. That union that was fixed in the mind of God is still in place. It has never been laid aside. And if you now marry her, she's already married to somebody else. 
That's why she's an adulteress if she remarries. Can't you and I then see that God's stipulations on this point were strong then and they still are? It's at this point, could I invite you to notice how the disciples reacted to this? In Matthew chapter 19, after the Lord taught this statement He did in verse number 9, "...whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication..." and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her that's put away to commit adultery, look at what the disciples said. Verse 10, The disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it's not good to marry. They knew very well that what Jesus taught was strong and very limiting. Even they understood the message. May I say to you, nothing has changed about the Lord's legislation. His law will be in place to the end of time. Look on the slide furthermore. As we have looked at this example, again, of John the Baptist and what happened to him, certainly we'd confess that it didn't turn out well for John in the sense that he ended up beheaded because he had the nerve to preach the truth on topics like divorce and remarriage. Well, at this point, could we not then say, so we have then highlighted that other than the death of a spouse, the only other way in which God will offer the opportunity for an individual to enter into a remarriage is if there's been a divorce for the cause of fornication. If I've put my spouse away because of his or her sexual infidelity, then God grants me the right to remarry somebody else. And it's not adultery in that case. But any other remarriage is adultery. And therefore God outlaws it. Now, some would perhaps at this point make a reference to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, isn't this another reason offered here? Let's see what that verse says. Would you be, please be turning to 1 Corinthians 7? And we'll look specifically at verse 15. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 15. To perhaps make a brief statement of the context... Again, a number of questions had been sent to Paul from the church in Corinth. They, they had some things they wanted answers to. And one of them was about divorce and remarriage. Notice verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. So they penned a letter, sent it to Paul, asking some questions about the very subject before us today. Can I divorce my wife? If I do, can I remarry? Well, over the course of that chapter, he answers those questions, but for the sake of our time, we only want to know about verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. And there are many instances in which you'll see references to this in such a way that it supposedly adds yet a third reason as to why a person could enter into, a, re, into, enter into a, a second marriage. They would claim, well, there it is. So if my spouse leaves me and I've been true to the marriage, then being the one left behind, doesn't that say that I'm not under bondage? Doesn't that then allow me to remarry? And the answer is overwhelmingly no. That is not at all what the context is teaching, for the next two verses make that abundantly plain. What he's here using in the Greek words very strong, I might say. It's a reference to slavery. And so the idea is this. 
Suppose there's an individual such that a Christian is married to a non-Christian. So one's faithful and one's not. Basically what's asked is because this person will not submit to Jesus, and suppose they leave me, do I have to give up my connection to Christ to satisfy them? Paul says, absolutely not. Your first loyalty is to God. If they choose to leave, as much as one would wish they didn't, they may leave, but you're still not free to remarry unless they commit fornication. Now, if they commit fornication clearly, and thus would meet the requirement of Matthew 19.9, then you would be able to remarry. But if they just leave you, you do not have the right to remarry. You can't be a slave to the circumstances of being drawn away from God that way. So we come back and note there's only two biblical reasons as to why an individual can remarry. Let's close our lesson then like this. As wonderful as marriage is, and we're so thankful for God's consideration and His teaching concerning it, we have learned today about this. Marriage is serious, whether one enters it for the first time or even a second time. But the conditions that God has stated are very firm. And if one is going to marry a second time, only two biblical reasons would make it lawful in the sight of God. One, if your first spouse died. Secondly, if your spouse is still alive, but if that person has committed adultery, if they have been unfaithful to the marriage, committing fornication, then, and only then, God allows you the right to remarry based on the teaching of Matthew 19 and those other passages we noted earlier. We're so thankful for God's teaching concerning it, but how important it is, not only that we understand it, but that we make sure that the next generation understands it. Because once you enter into a marriage, you may at that point have great limitations on what you in the future would be able to do. You may never be able to enter a second marriage. Again, if these conditions are not satisfied. We're thankful that God has taught us these things. And today, as we reflect on ourselves, examining ourselves whether we be in the faith, today there could be one or more in this audience that isn't right with God. Maybe, though a faithful Christian at one time, you've allowed things to occur in your life and made decisions that not only were poor but were sinful. Don't you know that Jesus still loves you? And He wants you to be a faithful servant of His, and He still wants you to go to heaven, but that decision is left with you. He won't force you to obey Him. He invites you, He implores you, He begs you, He beseeches you. But He leaves the decision to you. Today, if we could help you, assisting in, in a public response on your part, we'd be happy to do that. If you've never become a Christian, though, don't you realize what you're missing? A kind of marriage that would be pleasing to not only you and your mate, but also to the God of heaven. And what a blessing you could be to so many. Today, if we could be of assistance in any way to you, we would urge you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.